invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the Gospel of John and chapter 7. Today is our fourth message in a series, I Am. We're looking at Jesus' description of Himself, uh, Jesus in His own words. You know, there's a lot of confusion in our world today. We can say that in a lot of ways, but specifically, I'm thinking uh, in relation to who is Jesus Christ? If you ask a hundred people, you'll probably get 95 different answers about who is Jesus Christ. Some would just say He's a good man, a religious leader, a legend, maybe a magician, some good moral teacher. Some folks believe in Him as God and Savior. Others reject Him as false. Probably most simply don't know what to think about Jesus. The reality is not much has changed since the days when Jesus walked on earth. We'll see that in today's passage. Most folks just don't know what to do about Jesus. And some reject and some believe. It's really not that Jesus is unclear. It's not that He doesn't say who He is. It's not that He doesn't speak well. Uh, It's just because of preconceptions, misconceptions, hard hearts, other issues, people just won't hear or they won't understand or they will not receive what Jesus says about Himself. Reminds me of a story I heard some time ago of the uh, old movie star Cary Grant. He was walking down the street one day in California there and, and a guy was walking the other direction and they locked eyes and the fellow just with a big smile on his face just stopped and said, oh, you're, 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 uh, you're rock hot. No, no, no. Wait, I'll, I'll get it. Just a minute. Give me a minute. And after Cary Grant said after a few moments of awkward silence, he, he tried to help the guy out and finished his sentence, Cary Grant, and the guy said, no, that's not it. You're, uh... <laughs> I think that's what happened with Jesus many times. You know, he said, here I am. I am He. I am the bread of life. And people, no, 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 not that, not that. Something else here. A lot of confusion. Today we're in John chapter 7 and verse 29 is our verse of focus where Jesus says, I know Him, for I come from Him and He sent me. That word, if you have the ESV, that word come is the same word we've been using in all of this in Greek. It's ego, I, emi, am. I am from Him. And um, in order to really understand what he what he's saying in this passage, once again, we have to kind of zoom back the camera a little bit to get the big picture and look at the wider picture of this chapter. We go back to the very first verse of this chapter, verse one and two, and it says this: After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. 
He would not go... Well, by the way, we've spent the last two weeks in chapter 6. Chapter 6 was all about two days, back-to-back days, in the life of Jesus up in Galilee. And he's saying this happened after that. That was, if you'll recall last week, it was about the time of Passover. So March, April, in the spring. And this is, now he says, after that. He keeps going. He, Jesus, would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So, last week, chapter 6, it was the feast of Passover, March, April. Now he says the feast of booths is at hand. That's mid-October. So we're roughly seven months later that he's skipping, fast-forwarding past a lot of stuff. And uh, he says that Jesus has been hanging out in Galilee. That's where he was last, last week and, or seven months ago. Actually, he's been in Galilee for the past uh, year to year and a half, depending on which chronology you, you kind of hold to. And he's been staying in the north in Galilee because the last time that he was in the south in Jerusalem in Judea, uh, they tried to have, or they were looking for ways to have him killed. You can go back in John chapter 5, and he covers that. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more in a few moments. But So Jesus has stayed in Galilee, but now he comes to Judea. And he comes down for the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the, the Feast of Ingathering, or Sukkot is the word that the Jews would use most often for this. If you're following the Jewish calendar of feasts, and, and they, they had, God had instituted in the Old Testament law seven feasts that they were supposed to celebrate every year. And in their calendar, this is the last of the seven feasts. Mid-October. It's one of the three big pilgrim feasts. The pilgrim feasts were ones where the the males were supposed to show up in Jerusalem at the temple. And the three feasts that they were to do that was Passover and Pentecost, both of those in the spring, and then this feast in the fall, the Feast of Booths. The Jewish historian Josephus said that this feast was the most popular, the most loved among all the, uh, of the Jewish people. They loved this feast. Because it was the feast of joy. It was the great feast of celebration. God, matter of fact, told them, you are to celebrate this feast with joy. And so they made it a party. The feast honored, it was seven days long. And the feast commemorated or honored really two things. First, it happened right after the fall harvest has come in. And so it was, it was remembering God's great provision for them in the harvest that they've just gathered as they celebrate that harvest. So it's their harvest festival. But it also was a reminder of God's provision for them through the 40 years in the wilderness as God sustained them through the 40 years that the nation camped out in the wilderness. Matter of fact, the way that God told for them to celebrate and remember this holiday this feast was to go camping. It was God-mandated, God-ordained camping. And the instructions were you are to construct a little temporary booth, a tent, a 
you're, you're supposed to go build this thing and, and by tradition it could have any sides you wanted, but it was supposed to have some type of plant material on the, on the top. And people camped out. They would set this up on the rooftop of their house or they would set it up out in the street or in the park or in the, uh, in a little plaza or, or, uh, out in the, you know, they'd go outside of town and, and camp out in the, you know, in the wilderness, the woods or whatever. So that's how they celebrated. As I said, it was, uh, and some of you guys would think, and by the way, they still celebrate this today. And they, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, they'll set these up on their decks and out in the street and, and uh, they do it wherever Jews are. They will celebrate in, here in the States. And, and uh, some of you are probably thinking, you know, I could be a Jew. I like to camp. Others of you are just like my wife right now are just going, I am so glad we are not under Old Testament law. <laughs> some of you I know just really don't like camping at all. But I see that God likes camping so much that He ordered a week of it. It was a week of joyful celebration that involved lots of feasting and music and dancing. And the, the first and last day of this feast were celebrated as a, a special Sabbath, a, a day of rest and day of worship. But one of the big things of this feast was at night, every night of the feast, they would, they would light these giant Torches, or they would call them menorah, candlesticks, uh, um, that are in the temple square, and these giant torches that were 73 foot tall, if that gives you an idea just how big they are, they would light these and they would illuminate the entire temple area and much of Jerusalem, and they symbolized the, that pillar of fire as God was, His presence was with the Israelites by day as a pillar of cloud and by night as a pillar of fire. And so there were these massive torches that were illuminated the whole area. And it's hard for us to just picture this. We live in an electric light world. But in a world where electric lights didn't exist, where most of the time at night it's just dark. This, I imagine for these folks, was dazzling. It was a sight to see. They had never, nowhere else did they see this much light at night. And it was just, you know, a wonderful thing, a true spectacle to behold. Verse 10. That's kind of the background. We, let's jump back into the story. Verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he, Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for Him at the feast, saying, Where is He? And there was much muttering about Him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, He's leading the people astray. And yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Jesus. A few days after Jesus' family left Galilee and headed to the feast, Jesus went Himself incognito, very quietly, and went to Jerusalem. And it says the Jews here were looking for Him. And the Jews here means the Jewish leaders, not, not just the average Jews. They're all Jews, but this is the, the, the leadership. And they're looking for Him. And it doesn't say here, but we find out later. They're looking because they want to arrest Jesus. 
And they're probably hoping to catch him before the, all of the crowds get there. Or perhaps while the crowds are arriving and things are kind of tumultuous and, in a, and people are preoccupied just getting set up and getting everything organized and they're hoping they can catch Jesus, arrest Him, get Him out of the way and not start a riot. But He doesn't show. But not only are the, the Jews, the leadership looking for Him, but the, the crowd is also looking for Jesus. The anticipation is high that Jesus just might show up. There's much talking about Jesus among the masses as it says here in our verses. There's debates. Some are saying He's a good man. Some are saying, no, He's not. People people just don't know what to think. But whatever they think, everybody has an opinion. It's kind of like politics. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody's talking about it. Except everybody knows the leadership doesn't like Jesus. And everybody's afraid of a leadership And so the talk is all on the down low. What do you think about Jesus? It's all quiet. So there's anticipation that Jesus is coming. Verses 14 and 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus shows up. He went into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So halfway through the seven days, Jesus arrives. Now, the the temple is a huge place. It encompasses roughly 35 acres. It's just massive. And it's packed with tens of thousands of people. There are probably several hundred thousands of people who have come to Jerusalem for this feast as one of the big pilgrimage feasts. And at any given time, there's tens of thousands in the temple in the, this temple complex. It's customary for rabbis to just come into the temple and find a place, any corner, any little place in the temple, and just begin to teach. And little crowds would usually gather around rabbis. And, and, uh, but since Jesus is the person that is on the lips of everybody coming to town, when Jesus comes in and it says He begins to teach... I imagine that instantly there's a crowd of thousands gathered around listening to Jesus teach. So Jesus is doing what most rabbis do, but He has a crowd that most rabbis don't. Part of the reason is because Jesus' teaching is so different than other rabbis. Not just about His miracles, His teaching is very unique. As a matter of fact, if you go down to the end of this chapter, down toward the end, verse 46, there are some of the, the uh, temple guard who had, they had been tasked with going to try to arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed and, and they make this comment about Jesus. They, says, they say, no one has ever taught like this man before. No one ever spoke like this man it's been said about Jesus several times. One of the times was in, in Matthew records after Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. We know that message pretty well. And afterwards, he says, he records the people's amazement. And they said, because he, he, he was, they were amazed by him because he taught as someone who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. See, he, he was different. He stood in contrast to the way that 
rabbis and teachers would normally teach. And likewise, these Jewish leaders marvel at His teaching. The difference is that I don't think that uh, these rabbis or these Jewish leaders were marveling in a positive way. Their comments are public. It's public commentary because Jesus hears and the people are hearing and He responds to it. But really what it's designed, I think it's a confrontation. When these folks say, how is it that this man has learning, seeing as how he's never studied, what they're saying is, what value does this man's teaching have? He didn't go to seminary. He didn't study under the rabbis. He hasn't been credentialed. Therefore, what right does he have to speak? Why are you guys listening to this guy? Because what he says is useless because he's never studied. He didn't go to seminary. So what right does he have to speak? And then Jesus in verse 16 defends His authority. Verse 16, Jesus says, He answered them, My teaching is not Mine, but His who sent Me. You see, tradition was so important to the Jews and to the Jewish rabbis that a a rabbi wouldn't just go and just make up teaching. He wouldn't just stand here and just speak like I am, speaking extemporaneously or from notes about things I wrote down and speak strictly from the Scripture. Oh, that wouldn't be safe. What they do is a rabbi depends upon all the tradition and the teaching from all the other rabbis. And so the rabbi would say some things, but then he would quickly quote other rabbis to back up that what he says has some merit because rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so all said this, so therefore this is good. And now I say this, but rabbi so-and-so says that. And Jesus isn't doing that. And they're saying, oh, what right does he have to speak? He's never been taught by the rabbis, so he's not even quoting any rabbis. And Jesus is saying, in essence, right here, he's saying, you're right. I'm not quoting rabbis like you do. But just so you know, my teaching isn't my own. My teaching is from the One who sent me. Which raises another question. Who sent you? (laughs) Whose teaching are you delivering here? Verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So who is Jesus saying whose teaching He's delivering? God's. Jesus is saying God sent me and I'm delivering His teaching. That's a big claim. Can you back it up? Jesus does. He gives three reasons here why he, he says He is sent by God. And by the way, He, he emphasizes that again and again here in, in, this, in this section. In verse 28, He says, He who sent Me is true. I am going to Him who sent Me. And our verse of focus, verse 29, I am from Him. I know Him. I am from Him. And He sent Me. He's talking about God. And Jesus says, I've been sent. It's actually a focus all the way through the Gospel of John. It's many, many times Jesus says, I am sent by Him. 
And when Jesus says in verse 29, I know Him, I am from Him, He's not just saying God sent me. He also is saying, and you have to read carefully, but you see, it's not just that God says, you go, but He's saying, I come from Him. Jesus right there says, I was in heaven with God. Before I came here, He existed in heaven. His pre-existence as well as His authority are declared in this little, these little statements. Jesus also says, not only am I sent by God, but any godly person will know this. Anyone who really desires to do God's will is able to discern this and know that what I'm speaking is the truth or they'd be able to spot me as a phony right off. A godly person can know. But there's three evidences that He gives to back up His claims and say that you can know that what I'm speaking is the truth. First, we see in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus says, just in any case, if somebody is going out on behalf of somebody else to, to speak on their behalf, so whether it's the, uh, you know, the baseball commissioner sends out a spokesperson or the President of the United States sends out a spokesperson. If the spokesperson is looking to draw glory to themselves, they are not being a faithful spokesperson. And they should be written off as untrustworthy. And so he says, look at me. If I come from God, if I'm sent by God, look at me to see who am I trying to point the glory to. And you look at Jesus' life all the way through and He's constantly pointing the glory to the Father. It's all about the Father. I have come to do the Father's will. I have come to speak the Father's Word. I, I submit myself to the Father. It's all about the glory of the Father. And Jesus says, look. And by the way, it's a really good test today any time that you hear someone who stands up to speak and says that they are speaking the Word of God and speaking for God, if they look to draw glory to themselves, run. <laughs> Don't bother to listen. Just run. If they're drawing glory to themselves, they're not being faithful to God. Our Lord Jesus Christ deserves all glory and praise. Not us. We're just servants. Jesus seeks God's glory, but He goes on. He goes on in verse 18. The one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true, and in Him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill Me? And the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Second evidence that Jesus gives is that He's true and trustworthy in this is that He says, Look at My character. He is true. He is, there is no falsehood in Him. Jesus is saying, look at me. I have not broken God's law. He's the only person who can truly say that, by the way. But then He says, but you, leaders, it's not true of you. You break the law. Case in point, just one little example, you're trying to kill me. <laughs> And they immediately say, no, 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 and start the thing through the crowd. The guy's crazy. The guy is a demon. <laughs> Tell him. Problem with that, you go down and you read a little farther, and the crowd knows they're trying to kill him. <laughs> Isn't this the one they're trying to kill? Yeah, that's him. 
So they're caught and they know it. But they have accused Jesus of being a lawbreaker and He just said, I'm not. And so Jesus goes back and He takes them back to the story in John chapter 5 the last time He was there when they first decided they want this guy dead. And in John chapter 5, you can read the story and Jesus, Jesus refers to it here in verse 21 where Jesus answered them and He said, I did one work and you all marvel at it. That one work is back in John chapter 5. By the way, uh, I, in the Greek, it's y'all marvel at it. Because uh, I think Jesus has Texas roots. But <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. Uh, Jesus, back in John 5, last time He was in Jerusalem, Jesus healed a man that was lame. And it was an obvious miracle, one that nobody could deny. He had been healed and he's standing there walking in front of the, in front of these leaders. They've all seen him past him begging at the gates because he's crippled and they, they don't know what to do with this. They ignore the miracle and said, he healed him on the Sabbath. He's a lawbreaker. Jesus is a lawbreaker. He broke the Sabbath. He worked on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus, and I don't have time to go through this, but in verses 22 to 24, Jesus just destroys their case. What He does is just go back and say, Hey guys, the law says you are to circumcise a male baby on the eighth day. And you guys go ahead and circumcise a baby on the eighth day even if it falls on the Sabbath. You'll break the Sabbath law in order to obey the circumcision law. And what his point is, he's saying, if it's okay to purify a part of the body on the Sabbath, then it's definitely okay to cleanse or to heal a whole man on the Sabbath. And the logic is irrefutable and they have nothing to say. And he's just slam dunked here, said, I'm declared innocent. And you guys have been shown to be hypocrites. While you claim to be law followers, you're trying to kill me. Jesus' character demonstrates Him to be one who is from God. He has a spotless character, unlike any political figures I'm aware of today. Spotless. Thirdly, the third thing, and it's the same thing, His miracles demonstrate it is true. He said, I did one work and you marvel at it. They saw the miracle. They recognized. They knew it was a miracle, but they refused to accept the ramifications of the miracle. The ramifications are, <laughs> he's got to be God. Or at least he has the power of God. <laughs> this isn't normal. And as the people will later say, surely this must be the Christ because when the Christ comes, will He do more signs than this man has done? <laughs> Who could do more than what He has done? That's the point. In chapter 9, and very quickly, let me just turn over there because in the way that our schedule works, we won't actually see this story. It's just a couple of weeks or a month later. Another thing very similar, another miracle that Jesus does that is irrefutable. Jesus heals a man who was born blind. So his whole life from birth till, till this point, now as a grown man, he's, been, he's blind. 
And you know the story. Jesus heals this man and he goes into the temple and, and the Jewish leaders, all they can do, this guy is healed by Jesus, he can see. And what do they do? They try to, they harass this man, then they drag his parents in, and then they drag this guy back again, harassing him, trying to say, denounce Jesus as a sinner. Pick up the story in verse, in verse 29 here of chapter 9. And they said, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, that's Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. Now, by the way, Jesus just told him back in chapter 7 in our story today, he said, I come from God. He sent me. And we don't know where he comes from. Now, listen to this. This guy's answer is rich. He says, the man answered, verse 30, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does God's will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world, since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. You heard of anybody born blind who could suddenly see by some miraculous act? You ever know anybody to do that? Give me a name. Nobody. Never been done. Hmm. Funny thing. Last thing he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He put these guys in their place. He, what could they say? Jesus' miracles demonstrate that he's true. So Jesus said, do you doubt that I'm from him? Look at, look at my character. Look at who I put the glory to, the one who sent me. And look at my miracles. The crowd has... There's three reactions that we see here in this chapter to Jesus. We, we'll just have to hurry through a few of them right after this conversation. Verse 25 to 27, you see the crowd is confused. They, they know the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus, but they're just letting Jesus go. So maybe do they think He might be the Messiah? Maybe not, but, but they also are listening to all these myths and legends and and they're, they're confused by popular folklore and they're, they're confused and they don't know what to do with Jesus. We see it later on in verses 35 to 36. They're confused. You see it down in verse 40 to 42. They're confused and people are on all sides of it. And there's division, verse 42 says, in the crowds. They don't know what to do about Jesus. That is one of the responses of the crowd. Confusion. And it's one of the ways that people still today respond to Jesus. They just don't know what to make of Him. Another way that the crowd responds to Jesus is with rejection. Some of the people reject Him there in verse 27. No, it can't be Jesus because we know where He comes from and, and we don't know, we're not going to know where the Messiah comes from. And other, they just reject Him. The Jewish leaders definitely reject Him. They want to have Him arrested. Verse 30 it says, So they were seeking to arrest Him, yet no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not come. They, again, in verse 32, they seek to arrest Him again in verse 44. In every case, God prevented them. By the way, there's just a lesson in that. It says it wasn't His time yet. No one can overrule God's plan, God's time for His servant. If you and I are serving Jesus Christ, no one can overrule us. No one can touch us. For whatever God's plan is, he is sovereign. We can rest in that. God's in control. Lastly, 
Verse 31, Yet many of the people believed Him. And they said, When the Christ appears, will He do more signs than this man had done? So it was then, so it is today. Some people are just confused. Some people reject Christ and some people believe. Jesus responds to the crowd amidst all the, war, the, all the crowd, the confusion, the rejections, everything that's going on. People trying to arrest Him. Jesus responds with some words. Really, they're quite sad in verse 33. Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to Him who sent me. You will seek Me and you will not find Me. Where I am, you cannot come. See, it's mid-October. Passover is coming. It will be March, April. Five, six months from now, Jesus will die. He'll be crucified. Just a little while longer I have with you. And then I'm going back to the One who sent Me. And there's a warning. I think Jesus says this with great sadness because, you see, Jesus has come to be a Savior. And yet, He says, when I go there, you cannot come. To those who reject Him, they can never join Him in heaven. It's a somber warning to everyone who rejects Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. And there is no heaven. But Jesus isn't finished speaking. Jesus gives an invitation. The, the most joyful part of the Feast of Booths was a ceremony called the Water Libation Ceremony. It, it happened every day except the Sabbath days of the feast. It would begin at dawn, at daybreak, just as the sun's coming up. The priests would leave the temple and they would leave in a procession that was really a big, just think, parade. Lots of fanfare, lots of fun, lots of joy and music and people have lined the streets and are in balconies overhanging the street looking so they can watch as the priests work their way down from the temple down to the lower part of Jerusalem to the pool of Siloam. And there one of the priests will fill a flask with water. And then again with more great pomp and ceremony and music and dancing and singing and everything, this parade makes its way back up the hill to the temple. And then the priest will take that jar and he will pour it into a bowl on the corner of the altar. And the, the rabbis and all the tradition tied all of this ceremony to a verse Actually, a couple of verses in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1 where Isaiah says, Come, actually God speaking through Isaiah, Come you who are thirsty. And then in Isaiah chapter 12, there's this verse, chapter 12 verse 3. It says this, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And so all of this joy is about we're going to draw water from the spring of salvation and everybody knows and has connected as well this to the coming of Messiah. I mean, all these things go together. And it's in that context that Jesus in verse 37 has something else to say. It says, verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Drink of the water of salvation, Isaiah 12.3. Isaiah 1, You who are thirsty, come. Jesus says, Are you thirsty? Do you want what really satisfies? Do you want salvation? Do you want life eternal? Come to Me, He says. And drink, you'll find it. So He gives an invitation to these folks. So many of you, He says, are you rejecting? Come to Me. That invitation is the invitation He still gives today to anyone. That's His invitation to you. If, you've never, if you're not trusting Jesus as your Savior, He says, come to Me. And most of us here this morning are already believers in Jesus Christ. Does this have application to us? Yeah, keep reading because there's something really cool here for us. Don't miss, there's a blessing here and a message here for us. Keep going, verse 38. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds a little commentary. Verse 39. Now he said this about the Spirit whom those who had believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He's looking forward to after Jesus is crucified, raised from the dead, and when Jesus goes back to heaven, then on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, after He's crucified, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. Everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ from that day on receives the Holy Spirit the moment we trust in Jesus Christ. And all of us who are around in the fall as we were going through the book of Acts, we remember what the purpose, uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon us, came upon us for a reason, a purpose. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, you, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What Jesus says here in this little thing is, folks, Come to me, everyone who's thirsty, and drink the living waters, the waters of life. But He doesn't stop. It's not that we just come as big bowls and Jesus just pours His water into us and it stops there. We become receptacles. See, what He's saying is, well, look, whoever believes in Me as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You see, what He intends for us to do, all of us who are believers in Christ, is not to be receptacles, but to be conduits. So we drink of the water of life in Jesus Christ, and then we're supposed to be those who are sharing it with others. And, this, and He says, this, this living water that flows is the Holy Spirit, and the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I sent Him to you so that you can have the power to be My witnesses. You see how it ties? And so that Jesus here in this chapter who, who says, I am the one sent by the Father. He's sent by the Father to be our Savior. And here He even says, Now, you who believe in Me, I send you. That's going to be, by the way, the last message. I'm not going to say any more on that, but that's one Aaron's going to give in about another ten weeks. So I'll let him follow up on that. But it really comes to if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, are you living with purpose? Because that's what He calls you to do. He calls for us to be a fountain of living water that is flowing out 
into our home and our neighborhood and our job and our school. He's living to be a witness of Jesus Christ. If not, what I say is we're missing a great blessing that Jesus is promising here to those who believe in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for sending Your Son. He came to be our Savior. And if there is someone here today who's never trusted in Jesus, Lord, I pray that they understand in these moments that they're a sinner and they need a Savior. And that's why You sent Jesus. May they put their trust and their faith in Him. For all the rest of us, Lord, don't let us just live our lives wasting our time, biding our time, doing the whatever we just happen to feel like this day or that day. Rather, Father, may we embrace this blessing that You have given to us. You have given us the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being a fountain of living water that we can pour out into a parched world. Lord, may we not miss that blessing and settle just to live ordinary lives. But let us be fountains. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.